God, I'm staring at a creepy pumpkin lantern kind of thing from its side. And I just realized in my almost 28 years of life I have never done this. Why do I mention my sorry ass age every fucking every other episode? This is me welcoming you. Hi, I'm your host Maya and this is by all means necessary. It's a podcast. And we are in a month where I will finally turn 28. And also in the month, coincidentally, of serial killers, because I just like to do extra research in my birthday month. And boy, how do I even introduce the guy I'm covering today? How, how do I even do it? Okay, you can't say he is underrated, because that's just wrong. It's a serial killer. Also, he might or might not have killed like 67 men. So, underrated ain't hit. But then why hasn't he been covered by every single podcast? Because this guy will give you the creeps. However, why I'm covering it is because when I first heard this story, I was like, damn, there is something super relatable about Randy. One little thing, one little thing, but it's super relatable. And then everything else is just the most morbid things you will hear in your life. This one, just again saying, is graphic. Like, if you didn't like the Richard Kuklinski one, yeah, you will not like this guy. Because again, not to ruin it for everybody, but he was brutal. Especially with the male body parts. Yeah. And he didn't even have to do it for Mafia. He did it for his own personal kinkiness and weirdness. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Randy Kraft killed between 16 and 67 men during a 12-year spree. His manner of keeping track of his victims on a scorecard might have been what got him to continue with the murders by all means necessary. What were his motives? Whose shoes are you in today? Whose shoes are you feeling? Whose job are you doing? Well, in in this story, you are a police officer. You're like, yet again, Maya, we've done this with, like, Ben Rhodes. We've done this a few times. Well, I'm sorry. This is how this discovery worked, okay? But here, today, you're doing, well, I put it, the chillest of the police duties, or is it? It's the police patrol. What do you think about police patrolling? Is it the chillest, or is it... The scariest, because you never know who you're going to encounter. You never know whose car you're going to pull up and what state they're going to be in. And well, boy, in this situation, you sure as hell did not know what was happening. So you just see like a car swerving around and you're like, yeah, this person is drunk. Like, they have no clue what they're doing. So we have to stop them. Otherwise, they're going to fucking hit other cars and cause me some trouble. I wanted an easy ship. So you pull this driver and you're just like, hey, yeah, can you step out of the car? And, you know, just take, like, the breathalyzer test. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the thing where you blow it. <laughs> Hence why I don't have a driving license. Like, just imagine somebody pulling me over and be like, hey, do I have to blow it? <laughs> and then just asking, proceeding to ask the police officer about the technique. Yeah, no, this is why. I've never learned how to drive, never. And the police notices that there is a person in the passenger seat and they're like, yes, yeah, sir, you come out as well. And well, they're noticing that person ain't coming out. So one of them goes to the other side and just like nudges the passenger and then realizes there is no pulse. Like this person is completely cold and they notice he's dead. Meanwhile, Randy here, Randy, Randy, 
Love that name. I love the name. His actual name is Randolph. <laughs> it's perfect. Except he was a piece of shit, so no. He is asking and just trying to play bluff like no, nobody is gonna notice the body temperature drop when somebody's dead. So Randy's like, hey, how is he doing? And I suppose the police officer just looked at him and you're like, hey, you're not a Bundy, you're not that good looking to play this off, like, it, let's arrest your ass. And the police does, and now they're searching his car, they're like, okay, so clearly this person was probably dead by the hand of this man. They open the trunk and they find 47 pictures. So some of them Polaroids, but you know some of them, how back in the day people had to develop pictures? Again, who developed? these images, because they were explicit. Yeah, male genitalia, explicit. Who developed these pictures and why has nobody, it occurred to nobody to just report and be like, hey, so you know something that I'm developing? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit messed up. It's not just like your common fucking nude pictures. Mm. So they immediately are like, okay, fuck, we have somebody who is seriously sick. And then they take like the floorboard, is that what it's called, where you put the feet up in the car? So they have taken this car apart because they were clearly like, yep, yeah, everything goes into evidence. And they find a scorecard. Now, when I first heard of a scorecard, I immediately googled it so it will be on the social media because I was like, what does this mean? Is it like a tick tick kind of list? No, it's not. It's quite literally just a piece of paper that had 61 names on it. Well, pardon me. No, that, that would be too easy. This is the relatable part, the only relatable part of Randy's story. The car didn't have names, it had codes. So you know how, you know, you meet somebody at a party and you're like, you will most definitely not remember their name the first time you meet them. So you're like, oh yeah, that person I met wearing that long eyelashes. I don't know, like I had this thing when I was, you know, heavily involved with the, on Tinder. I had a person called DNA in the phone, that is, do not answer. I think I had somebody called Mr. Screwface, which was just, like, what was that even about? I think that person just had the screwable face and not the rest of them. <laughs> you get the gist, you get what he was doing. Well, if you don't, I'm gonna go through, like, the whole list, because there's a couple of code names that still haven't been identified. I have just discovered that if I put the mic onto like the lower bottom of the freaking shelf. If you watch the last minute so you've seen my podcasting corner, I just realized that this is actually the perfect <laughs> angle for it. I can change the place of podcasting. It's almost a year, guys. Almost a year doing this. And I have changed the podcasting place like a hundred times. The month that still had the worst sound, yes, came when I was podcasting from bed <laughs> with just the mic. Yeah, nobody cares. Nobody, literally nobody's here for this. So, of course, Kraft went to trial. But obviously, like, his attorneys tried to deny that this is a death list. They <laughs> were like, yeah, it's just meaningless, you know, information. This is totally irrelevant to the case of the jury. It's just him naming people he met at parties. Like, he was working and going around places for his job. Like, of course he wouldn't remember everybody's name. He's just innocent. But the prosecution managed to make the case and actually connect everybody but a few people on this list and the judge then just allowed it to go into the evidence. If you already checked the description box, you know this podcast is kind of structured and it's structured for that reason because this next part is super brutal. So check the timestamp below if you want to skip it. We're going to discuss Randy Craft's scorecard and it's just some of the most brutal things you might have heard in your life including mutilation, murder, how he disposed of the bodies, all of that bad stuff. So 
you can still listen to the rest of like the ammo and like his initial crimes after just speed up to that timestamp and join me then cool you have been warned let's go so first of all the victims that they managed to actually connect him to stable corresponded to wayne joseph duquette who was 30. he was last seen in stable's bar in sunset beach and this is where he was bartending so this is one of his earliest victims and Kraft was connected to him because he was actually working at this gay bar next to Stables and was the frequent customer. Next one is EDM. He's Edward Daniel Moore and he was a Marine, only 20 years of age. And this is going to be a brutal part. He was strangled, but they found a sock uh, stuffed in his rectum. This is the part everybody brushes off. Okay, so, because everybody does that, I have done an anatomy lesson, meaning I have googled rectum. Okay, so you know how you have an anus, right? And then it goes into the rectum. Okay, why the fuck am I telling you that? I know you're all wondering now. Well, because everybody brushes off because they are uncomfortable with this as the police was with all of these crimes because they're all like the homosexual in nature and you know how people were in the 70s when everything was had to do with with gays but how did that sock get into that rectum so either he was like shoving it that deep or what did he have sex with his dead body and that's why the sock was there i mean i kind of think like every single thing that trendy did speaks to his motives so why just brush over this airplane hill corresponded to the john doe that they found between golden west and Gothard street in huntington beach so it was kind of like known for the area that's called that twiggy this is another brutal one his name was james dale reeves also again only 19 years of age and again he shoved into that part of the body, but he shoved a twig this time. Hence the twiggy. Number 10, he didn't even try. The, just the code is Vince M and the guy's name is Vincent Cruz Mestas. I mean, you, you could have tried harder here, Randy, maybe. Vincent was 23 of Long Beach. And again, like with other victims, he would redress them or like partially dress them, like wouldn't completely bother. Vincent was particularly not just mutilated in all of the common genital areas, like he would usually castrate them or they would have bites on uh, those areas. We'll talk about his ammo later. But uh, Vincent had actually had his hands severed from his body as well. And as most of Randy's victims, he was strangled. 11. Wilmington. Again, because the person was found in Wilmington area. This is another John Doe. And uh, yet again, uh, kind of getting getting bored of this, of his own dumbass game that nobody made you play in the first place, Randy. Why were you just naming them now after the areas? Like, yep. Because the next one is uh, called Pier 2. And this is corresponding to the body of Thomas Paxton Lee, who was 25 of Long Beach again, and was found on a pier in an oil field again in the long beach harbor oh next one he's he's back to his uh, inspiration again this one uh, he named skates this was john william laras also super young only 17 this guy again of long beach with this one it says a surveyor's skate was stuffed into his again anus slash rectum and i don't know how because isn't that like the skate that skateboarders use like the, what part how why what Next one is called Parking Lot, and that corresponds to Keith Davon Crotwell. He was, you guessed it, last seen leaving the parking lot next to this Belmont Plaza pool in Long Beach, and uh, this guy was decapitated by Randy, so he's 
body and his head were found in two separate places. Next one is just peak. It's just you're just getting bored. Why are you even doing this? He named this one deodorant because this guy, Robert Avila, only 16. Again, horrible. Everything about this is horrible. This is to ruin your Monday. This guy was a heavy deodorant user, whatever that meant to Randy. The next guy is just named Dog, and this corresponds to Raymond Davis, 13. He was actually found next to the body of Avila, so of the deodorant guy, and he went to the park to look for his lost dog. Teen Trucker corresponds to Malcolm Eugene Little, who was 20, and it's not even him that was the truck driver, it was his brother, because he dropped him off at this interchange at the freeway for Malcolm to hitchhike back to Alabama. Again, Randy stuck a twig in his rectum, but yeah, he could have named two guys Twiggy. I mean, as if he had inspiration. Some people just don't realize that you don't... You, you can use imagination, just leave it at the imagination stage. You don't proceed with everything and then just write up a book about the morbid shit. You don't have to do it in real life. The next guy is 7th Street. He was Ronnie Jean Weeb, and he was found along the 7th Street uh, on the freeway. Again, same MO, strangulation, sock stuck in his body parts, and again, here now, people kind of notice that uh, Rand part of Randy's MO is also that he is, like, ejecting people from a moving vehicle, because he's a piece of shit he doesn't care about now, he has done everything he needs to do, and then he just throws you out as he's driving. Lakes MC corresponds to Gregory Wallace Jolly, who is 20 and was found in um, the lake in Arrowhead Big Bear area. Again, with this one, he, they found him without his head or legs. MC Laguna corresponded to Roger E. Dickerson, who was only 18, also a Marine, found in Laguna Beach. Golden Sails corresponded to Craig Victor Jonites, who was 24 and he was found next to the Golden Sales Hotel at the Pacific Coast Highway. Euclid corresponded to Scott Michael Hughes, who was 18, also a Marine, and was found at the Euclid Street. Again, Randy redressed him and the shoelaces were also removed from his shoes, and he was also emasculated like majority of them, all of them. Now, what the hell is this? Hoof of head. Hoff spelled is H-A-W-T-H. The fuck are you Shakespearean era, Randy? This is just a John Doe that, that well, they actually found his torso in Alameda Street and Henry Ford Avenue in Wilmington. And they found his right leg another on the freeway, and then his arms on like another part of the freeway. And then his head on the beach. Like the effort, the effort for the game. I wouldn't do this kind of. I, I wouldn't put this much effort into like Monopoly. Okay, the 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 guy invented this game. You could have made it so easy, like you didn't have to do it in the first place. Yeah, but also uh, just, just the effort. Next one, he just named seventy six, and this is John Doe number two nine nine, and he put him in the dumpster at Union seventy six station. Again, same dismemberable parts, sock stuff. I cannot. What have socks done to you, idiot? As a sock lover, this part pisses me off 20 times more. Also, why did everybody just brushes it off? Do you understand the effort this guy had to do? And did he do it with his dick? It's a real question. Big Sur corresponds to Gary Wayne Cordova, who was 23, and he would often talk about Big Sur, hence why the name on the scorecard. 
Marine Head BP corresponds to Mark Allen Marsh. And he told his fellow Marines that he was on his way to Buena Park, hence the BP. Expletive deleted. The fuck? Corresponded to Paul Joseph Fuchs. Fuchs? Let's say Fuchs. We don't know what, what expletive deleted meant. Marine Carson corresponded to Richard Allen Key, who was 20. And he was last seen hitchhiking from a girlfriend's house the day before in Carson. New Year's Eve! Yet, yeah, nothing, nothing was too far, nothing was, you know, he would kill on Christmas. Randy was like, yeah, New Year's is when I strike, this is my prime time. Mark Howard Hall, who was 22, last seen leaving a New Year's Eve party. This again has to be said, but it's so brutal, skip the next 30 seconds. Several parts of his body, including his eyes, don't do the eyes, the eyes always creep me out, and genitals were mutilated with the, you know, the cigarette lighter that you have in your car? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's skip that part, yeah. Westminster date, not the UK Westminster, no, it didn't go that far. This was Jeffrey Bryan Sayer, only 15, and this is Westminster area near Long Beach, jail out referred to Roland Gerald Young, who was 23, and he was named Jail Out because just hours before he was released for a misdemeanor violation from Orange County Jail. But now you kind of realize that Randy would have some... He was a talker, at least. You'll realize after when you go into his background why, but yeah, he managed to actually get people to open up about his their, you know, actions, like where they're going, where they're headed. So, yeah, he wasn't just a complete Ben Rhodes kind of creep, you know, he would actually chat with them while he had them and then, yeah, proceeded to torture them. So they probably, no, nobody wishes that they were Robert Ben, ben Rhodes, Maya, nobody, not a single person wishes that one serial killer is another serial killer. What the fuck? Marine drug overnight shorts refer to Donnie Harold Crystal, who was 20, who was also Marine, and he was only clothed in shorts, hence the name. Again, he used this auto-cigarette lighter to burn his nipple. For a few of them, including this guy, um, the cause of death was actually poisoning due to alcohol and drugs. So again, that was part of his MO. Torrance referred to Richard A. Crosby, who had uh, one of the last things he has done is had um, seen a movie in Torrance. And he was also one of the habitual hitchhikers, like plenty of Randy's victims. Again, because now this is the next one in line, Randy again practiced with uh, nipple mutilation, because nothing is enough, nothing is enough anymore. Next one, particularly disturbing, two in one beach, mm -hmm, refers obviously to two people, Jeffrey Allen Nelson and Roger James Deval Jr. Nelson. So the first Nelson has been thrown out of the moving vehicle, and the wall Nelson was found in a ravine in the Angeles National Forest. And they knew that both of them were killed in the same place because of the sand that they found on their bodies. Hollywood bus, where, what, what can that be about? This refers to Christopher R. Williams, who was 17. He was a known male sex worker who worked from bus stops in Hollywood. MCHB tattoo refers to Robert Wyatt Loggings. Because he had a large tattoo on his arm and was last seen with friends near Huntington Beach. Now he has a few of them that he killed when he was in the Portland area. Portland Eck refers to John Doe, so wasn't identified. Portland Denver refers to Michael Sean O'Fallon, who left his home of Denver, Colorado to hitchhike to Northwest. Portland Blood refers to Michael Duane Clark. 
and the prosecutor said this is the bloodiest crime scene of all the 45 cases that they actually managed to connect to him. Portland, Hawaii refers to Lance Trenton Tags, who had a small tote bag marked Hawaii and was also seen hitchhiking with a shirt that had Hawaii on it. So again, he just doesn't have imagination no more. Portland Reserve refers to Anthony Jose Silveira. He just completed duty in the National Guard just before he was picked up by Randy. Portland Head refers to Brian Harold Witcher. They had no idea why the head here, because, yeah, he was found in one piece, but again, sodomized. GR2 refers to Dennis Patrick Alt and Christopher Allen Schoenberg, because, again, there's two of them now. And GR stands for Grand Rapids, Michigan, where they were attending a horticultural convention. SD Dope it refers to Michael Lane, and he was known for frequent drug usage, hence the dope. Hike Out LB Boots refers to Keith Arthur Klingbeil, who was 23, and the boot lace was missing from his left hiking boot. And the last one on the list that they managed to connect to the person was Dart405, and this is Michael Joseph Inderbeaten. And again, no idea why he named him Dart405. Now let me just run through the names on the list that didn't manage to connect to anybody. So one was Angel, then Harikari, Marine Down, Van Dryway, 2-in-1 MV2PL. Again, this might be easy to solve because I bet MV and PL must mean some names, but again, I have no idea. LB Marina, Diabetic, it's just this guy. You give him an inch and he just takes a mile. He's like, yeah, he was diabetic like when he was 10. This is it. Portland, Navy White, user. Just just user. Which probably means a drug user, but just user. It can mean anything. Iowa, two-in-one hitch. I bet he's not referring to one of the best movies of all times, Will Smith. <laughs> one of the best movies, really. Really. No, he just, he just reminds you of, of uh, good times in the 90s and... Uh, 2000s. Okay. Front of Ripples, Carpenter, MC Dump, HB Short. Oh, mate, just make it easy for people. Oxnard. What the fuck is Oxnard? MC Plants, England, Oil. And 61st name on the list is What You Got. I swear to God. Well, I don't know about any of you, but I'm going to down my cider right now because I have lost about like five years of my life. So just just reading this out and just thinking about this. But yeah, I think it's important to state all the names because people just brush off what Randy has done. And this is 61 victims. Like, how is this guy not on everybody's radar, even in prison, man? the police obviously and you're actually investigating this well once you go through the scorecard you're like okay doesn't seem like he has started with all of these like as i mentioned it is pretty brutal and like the way he just dumps them drops them kind of gives them some experience so they're like this guy has done something in the past and of course he did his first violent sexual assault took place in march of 1970 with a guy called joy fun when he brought him to the flat where he lived with his roommate and he drugged him and sexually assaulted him but when joey went to report it to the police he admitted he has taken drugs and well a the police didn't take it seriously because he said that but also they realized that they have searched craft's place without a warrant so technically 
the case was nullified somehow. I don't know if this is still a law, hopefully not. But I put this is definitely what you shouldn't do because, you know, if somebody reports the rape and then you let them go because, you know, on a technicality, yeah, that totally won't encourage them for the future. Of course, as majority of serial killers, he has served in the military as well. And I put after this, Kraft fell back, went back to the gay bar scene he knew and loved. And while working for the gay bar stables, this is obviously when it was on the beach, he had easy access to the people at the bar, at that like neighbor's bar, and this is when he went for his first known victim, who was Wayne Joseph Duquette. And well, let's go into his modus operandi, because there's a couple of things that worked for Randy really well, and one of them was the highway. There have been a couple of highway killers at that time. It was a mad time in the US. I imagine this, I mean, the only relatable, semi-relatable thing that I can do it is like, you know, when you have a sibling and your family buys you like so many toys and then they're like, yeah, you just decide who wants what toy and you're like, uh, I don't know, I'm so confused, which one do I want, but I want the good ones, but I also, you know, want my brother to have like some decent one and you're just like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Yeah, it was that but with corpses. Mm -hmm. It was like, who's gonna claim what? So everything seemed to present an opportunity for him because he worked for like a computer company that allowed him to travel. But you're like, oh, that's the dream, like, just live your best life, and then this guy just took it the wrong way. And then, I, the one thing that I don't understand, or, like, that I don't know in this story, is how he managed to get this many drugs. I mean, it was the 70s, so it was probably, like, super easy if he had just had a dealer. But because all of his victims had either some drugs in the system, or they died because of the overdose, because he would just spike their drinks. So he'd pick them up when hitchhiking, he would drug them, rape them, sodomize and torture them, and then ultimately kill them. Again, skip the next about two minutes, because this is like the most brutal part of the MO if you don't want to listen to it. He, as I mentioned, loved the torture, and he would usually love to torture them before actually finally killing them. As mentioned with some, he would cut off the head and the hands. With most of them, I think all of them, he removed testicles. Sometimes he would even cut off their eyelids so that they watched their own castration because, as I mentioned, he was doing this while they were alive. And he was a biter. He was biting at the genitals. Now, as somebody, as you know, I like covering BDSM cases, I like covering fetishes, all these weird cases which include some sexual element, right? And that is partially because the scene of BDSM and just biting or just anything that's even remotely sexualized is just so perverted in these people's eyes. So it's kind of in a way of raising awareness that this thing is not how it's done, okay? He's not doing this out of him wanting the pleasure or just anything because otherwise he could have a consensual thing. Plus also... As a person that actually likes biting, enjoys biting, enjoys biting other people, and enjoys being beaten, cool, TMI. Biting the genitals means hatred. Means you just hate who they are as a person, and yeah, well, homosexuality plays a part in there. And as we know, with a lot of them, he would stuff things uh, up the rectum, so stuff like twigs, mostly socks, or just pull, like anything he would find, but yeah, mostly socks. Now I put, this is like me trying to find a light moment in this story. Start respecting your own anus more and more each day. Truly, really, if you wake up and you just like go to the shitter smoothly, just respect it. 
And I put this, even though I will obviously talk about it more later, but the severity of the violence actually depended again on how on his personal life, because he was dating a guy during all that time. So it just depended, you know, whether they were having a bad or a good day. And then sometimes, yeah, if he was having a bad day, the victims would be the ones to pay the price, not the partner. And my takeaway from this is, this is why it's important to separate your personal from your work life. Yeah, that's your takeaway out of all of this. This is it. To finalize this MO, he would, after torturing and murdering them, just throw them out of the moving vehicle because, again, piece of shit. He just disposed of them while moving so that they can't be traced back to him. But let's talk about this relationship and this guy that somehow, again, yet again, another partner that doesn't know shit, is just not clued up on what he's doing. How? How do you live with somebody and completely not know them? Especially in the 70s. This is not like now everybody's in their phones and nobody's communicating with one another. No, this is the 70s. You literally had nothing else to do. Well, for that, we need to go back into Kraft's life and mind in 1971, when he decided to become a teacher. This guy was a teacher, I don't know what to tell you. And this is where, at the university, he met a fellow student called Jeff Graves. And it was Graves who introduced Kraft to bondage, drug-enhanced sex, and threesomes. But Graves, and this is such a weird dynamic, and again, I think it has to do with Kraft's motives, is that Graves was the wild one. I'm putting it like under inverted commas here, <laughs> but you don't have the visuals. Graves was the one that wanted to hoe around, that wanted his threesomes and everything, and Kraft was the one that was like, no, but we moved in together, like, you know, let's have a normal life. Which, not to give relationship advice, but it means that two of you are on the, not on the same page and you should separate and nothing, none of this has had to happen because of that. But, you know, again, uh, w- what do I know? So they finally kind of split up and this is when Kraft meets another Jeff. Just, just has a thing. He can't do with names. We have learned that. He's like, he meets a Jeff and he's like, that, that was the name of my ex. This is perfect. You know, everybody else is like trying out there to really stay away from like the name, the name of your ex. When you meet somebody, you're like, no, I can't, I cannot. You're like, you remind me of my ex. Kraft was like, this is perfect, man. I don't have to even remember the names. I'm shit at this. Now, this guy was at the time 10 years younger than Kraft. He was 19. Why did I say at the time? Like, he will always have been 10 years younger than him. It's not like the age will just change. What the fuck? So, of course, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, Kraft here saw the opportunity for him to be the dominant one, for him to be, like, the bossy one and introduce him suddenly to everything, to the life that he has known, to this gay scene. He was like, yeah, you're 19. Like, you know, I'm easily gonna dominate the shit out of you. And they finally decide to get, like, a small home. Kraft got a computer job. And... The tensions grew because of their distance, because of this long-distance relationship and business trip every now and then. So they split in 82, and only like a year later, Kraft will get caught for this. And now we go back to that trial, because there's a few things that you need to know about. Well, a few sentence, but also... Because at trial, it was heavily speculated whether Kraft was doing this all by himself. As I mentioned in this victim section, this is a lot of work. Like dismembering the body, like disposing of them different sides of the highway. Like how has he done all of this by himself? 
sometimes two in one night, as we have said. So they were like, hey, was this Graves, Jeff Graves guy involved? He was a suspect, but because he died of AIDS, he didn't incriminate himself anymore. So that kind of remained a mystery. So at trial, his defense obviously just dismissed everything from the scorecard, just uh, gave different alibis, like, hey, he was actually working that night, all of that shit, told that the evidence is circumstantial, and that he was this hard-working and upstanding guy who was working for this company, he had a house, he had seemingly his shit together, he had, like, this guy who was working out his long-distance relationship, you know, nothing wrong here. And, well, they brought to the jury that hey, you actually suspected other people before Randy for these killings. One was Patrick Kearney, who was another serial killer, and the other one was William Bonin. Yeah, that guy definitely didn't get bullied in school. And because of this, because they had to tie him to so many people on the scorecard, well, this was the most expensive trial in Orange County history, and it was also one of the longest, so it took about 13 months. And the jury in the end took a long time as well. They took around 11 days to find him guilty and give him the death sentence. However, while on the death row, in 2000, the California Supreme Court upheld the death sentence. So he isn't, unless again they can change it again, he is now just gonna serve his life in prison. Now let's go on to actually happy days, because we're talking about Randy Kraft's background and it's weirding me out. Why do I say it's weirding me out? Well, Krauss was born on March 19, 1945, as Randolph, and he was the youngest child and the only son of four children born to Opal, 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 yeah, let's say it's Opal, right? It's a female name, it's a cool name, and Harold Kraft. And he was showered with attention, they loved him, and this reminds me of the tendency of people today to post their babies on the socials, like they're princes and princesses, like they're literally the, the freaking Meghan Markle's and Harry's child, and I'm like, yeah, that's totally not gonna make them the worst human alive when they grow up. I actually think about that a lot when I see people's kids on the internet in general, just because... Like, just imagine how different today is to even just go to, like, kindergarten and primary school if you already, your parents already created, like, a social media profile for you since you were a baby or just, well, posted on theirs, like, hundreds of pictures and videos. You just, like, there's just no way to start from zero and to, like, ever stand a chance because, what well, they're not going to remove it if they're that kind of parent. So, yeah, you're just having a different kind of childhood and it's sad. So his childhood was kind of unremarkable. The only, like, oh my god thing was that his dad was kind of distant and, again, preferred to spend a lot of his non-working time with other members of the family, like his sister and his mother. As in Randy's mother, like his wife. <laughs> it would be really weird. It's like, no, he just Randy's dad going back with his mommy. Totally n no red flags. He just, you know, sleeps in the bed with the mom. Okay, if you ever email me about anything random, email me, do you know of a person, have you ever dated a person that still would, like, go to visit the mom and then just, like, sleep in the bed with their mom? Yeah, uh, and how how fast have you run out of that relationship? Cool, 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 Randy Craft. Another thing that's kind of common with serial killers and was the only thing where, like, you were like, oh, wow, from his childhood, is that he fell from this couch and he broke his collarbone so it's again like the falls that they have as kids 
And then a year later, after that, he was knocked unconscious after falling down a flight of stairs, you know, telenovela style. But again, nothing like substantial, except that he did complain about migraines a lot in his later life, which might have been related to these falls. So yeah, that's kind of like a common factor if you're looking for patterns. At school, Kraft excelled, and he was like recognized as this above every student, and he was super involved. Too involved, if you ask me, because it was during these years that his interest in politics grew. We're talking like age of like 10, okay? And early teenage years, he declared himself to be a diehard Republican. Again, I know shit about politics. I genuinely don't know what Republicans stand for. It's all great. I'm super dumb for it. But what I know is that uh, your child should have like other interests at this time. You know, maybe just wank to something, realize like their sexuality before they declare they are diehard of any political party. It's just, you know, the nature of life. Like, hey, you, you need first to, to be born to, you know, learn how to walk kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a great comparison. My head completely logical to everybody else. By high school, he was just a spoiled little brat because everybody was older than him, so they all left house. And both of his parents worked, so he just bossed around the house. He had his own car, he had the money that he earned from part-time jobs, had his own room, was just living his life. And he graduates high school at the age of 18, ranked 10th in his class of 390 students. So again, super smart. Where did this all go wrong? I feel kind of like with... Uh, what's the guy that I spoke about last week? Jerry Budos. We had like some suppressed sexual tensions and it's kind of displayed differently because that guy had fetishes. And Randy Kraft was gay and he was, well, suppressing it for a while. And it was only after his high school that he kind of started cruising gay bars. He got more and more involved into politics, joined reserve officers training corps, and was the supporter of Republican presidential candidate at that time. His name was Barry Goldwater, if that means anything to anybody. This is also when he shifted. As soon as he got into his first actual gay relationship, he kind of shifted his views from conservative to left-wing liberal. And he later said he was only conservative to, like, please his parents. And about this, he said, kids do the darnest things. Who is he suddenly? What is going on? Is he British? What is happening right now? <laughs> but obviously, because his parents were still, you know, conservatives, they obviously didn't know he was gay. So he would kind of try to, like, warm them in and bring this new boyfriend for, like, a dinner. Like, hey, yeah, he's just a friend and see, like, how they react. However, they still remained unaware of his, like, sexual preferences. Now I have to develop something for you, okay? Because it's just bugging me with this case. Usually, there's combinations that are not just great if we are talking about, like, the soup of serial killings, right? Usually, it is homosexuality mixed with either religion, so, like, a deeply religious family, like, that family that made you go to mass, like, and was kind of being like, yeah, Jesus hates homosexuals from the get-go. Or it is politics. So in those situations, you know, one plus one doesn't equal two. It's usually kind of like, you know, that math where, you know, one plus one equals like the square root of three minus something. And you're like, okay. And I think it's because your values get so jumbled up 
that you can't equate the two and you well if you were brought up because i think like everybody's like oh yeah his childhood was great like what the fuck was his problem it's again because he was brought up this whole time to value to have different values to what he discovered because of how long he was suppressing it too late that they're not his own values and he doesn't actually have an identity which is yes the problem if you kind of just publish one version of your child on the internet again today parents and then when they discovered who the fuck they are they're like oh no i actually like hate this because i'm not supposed to be like that so i'm not supposed to be feeling comfortable having this gay relationship going to these gay clubs and then obviously that doesn't lead anywhere good it's again ugh, what freaks me out <laughs> can totally sideline because trying to make this story light <laughs> but the most irrelevant comparison is when you're like oh no my two-year-old child is vegan no no they're not that was not their choice like, what are you imposing onto your child because then yeah if you make your two-year-old child vegan your 20-year-old child is gonna hate them hate the wings hate yourself hate everybody because why the fuck did you instill these values onto a two-year-old so a few years before his spree in 67 he kind of like changed his lifestyle a bit again he's trying to step away get out of these values and step out of his shell but this meant he went for more like of a hippie look so he grew his hair long, started like channeling a mustache, channeling a mustache, became a registered Democrat, worked for Robert Kennedy's campaign, and also started suffering from migraines and stomach pain. And then uh, mixed like the medication he got for these with alcohol. A great combo from the get-go. He just doesn't understand. I put, I love how I'm saying it and then I see that I put it in the script. I love in this collides. He just doesn't get his combos. He's making a bad mixer of life. Yeah. You know how there's just some alcohol that you don't mix, not with medicines, but like just with other alcohol? Mm. Bad mixer of life. And because of these other interests, like him rebelling, experimenting, doing all these things, he didn't graduate in time, but he still got his bachelor's of arts in economics. What? <laughs> Is this correct? Well, I don't know, and I can't be bothered to Google, so if Bachelor's of Arts in Economics, uh, what is the art in economics? Please explain it to me. But yeah, he got it in 68, so just like a couple of months later, then he should have cool, cool, cool nerd. And people kind of speculate whether this murder spree was sparked, because as I mentioned, he went to military around this time, and he was discharged from it, and he was kind of like medically discharged, and we know with... Well, everybody else, if it is medically discharged around 1970s, that usually meant they discovered that you were homosexual and they kind of like didn't even want to deal with it or name it anything else. And after the military, he actually went and just told out, like came out to his family. He was like, listen, I'm gay if you didn't you can know this so far, because, you know, I didn't bring like a single girl home or anything. And the family actually accepted it. And they referred to this afterwards, like once... They found him guilty of all of these murders because at this time he said to his family that there is a part of me you will ever, you will never know. And then they were like, oh, he's probably just referring to like, you know, his homosexual lifestyle. But no, he was referring to the beginning of his true crime spree. So this is where it all began. And now what the hell motivated Randy Croft? Again, criminal minds Maya coming here for a second. He hated that he was homosexual. Again, from everything that I have told you, different values, different everything. And it's just because of 
how he was sodomizing people, biting at his uh, their genitals, shoving stuff up their anus and rectum. Nobody who does these things does them to pleasure other people or like for anything good like to get off themselves. It's because of that suppressed hatred towards who they are. So it's kind of like killing the gay, but you can't kill it in yourself because you're a coward and you don't want to commit suicide, so you kill it in other people and then that gets you off somehow because finally, you know, you're cleansing the world of gayness or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Cool, now that I put my two cents into that, let's see what other people with some qualifications have said. So, there was this podcast, I think it's Serial Killers by Parkast, and well, the psychologists on that have said that he suffered from what's called, well, he didn't suffer from, but like these were lust murders. And it's again a paraphilia, so like a fetish technically. Called erotophanophilia, which is when you're sexually aroused by the gratification that you get from a death of human being. Basically, it's a sadistic homicide. So it's when you commit a murder during the sexual activity by either mutilating the sexual organs or the areas, and it can include everything that Randy has technically done with his victims. So, I'd like to know what you think. Was it caused by a paraphilia? Was he just too focused on this? Or is it actually that, well, he was just trying to kill the homosexuality that he was uncomfortable with ever? Because again, it stood away from all of his values and he didn't know how to deal with it and he didn't look to seek fucking therapy or help. No, he just killed a bunch of people. But boy, this is so fucked up. Like, that whole scorecard, like, really gets to me. So, you know. Next time when you name your next in the date Mr. Screwface in the phone, just think about that for a second and be like, do I really need you in there anyways? So relatable, Randy Craft, right? Right. On the spot this week, on the spot, what do I have cooked for you? We are going to listen to a YouTube video, well, the audio version of the YouTube video of mine on zemiology. So it's again one of those criminology one-on-one sessions that I do on YouTube and you can watch. I'll link it down below as well if you're more of the visuals person. But just to warn you, it kind of contains spoilers because I have basically broken down the Criminal UK episode which was released a month ago. So, you know, you either at this point have watched it or you don't maybe want to watch it. Just telling you, if you haven't watched it and want to watch it, it will probably tell you everything that happens in the episode. It's that episode with Kit Harrington about the false rape accusation. So let's listen to the criminology point of view on this. And just in general, I kind of tell people what to do if they have been falsely accused. So it's useful. Let's dive in. A couple of weeks ago, I have watched Criminal UK, right? They have like different versions in different countries. It's this TV show on Netflix that deals with police interrogations and then obviously people like behind the screen kind of like analyze it and offer their opinion while also researching on the case and trying to find out different information to help like the person that's actually interrogating the suspect. In particular, I'm going to talk about the second episode of this season in the UK. They had like famous actors this year, so they had the actor that played Jon Snow. Kit Harrington, yeah, that episode, because I think it's not talked about often. You know, something is just like nudging your brain and doesn't stop for weeks, because I watched it like the day that it was released, so it was kind of a few weeks ago, and I was always watching it from that perspective and thinking, wait, but there is something in criminology that I've studied 
that deals with this kind of thing. And that is zemiology, or just the study of social harm. The episode is about this arrogant sales guy who has been accused of raping a woman that works for him in his company. During this interrogation, he mentions a person, a girl, that this girl has been chatting about, talking to. So the people behind the screen actually investigate and find out that she is planning to profit out of these accusations of rape, sue him for a certain amount of money, and then cash it out and go on holiday with this girl. So, first of all, just wanted to give a disclaimer in this video because of what I'm gonna say next. In no shape or form am I trying to undermine the work of the Me Too moment or just any work representing rape in, like, in television or film or series, but I definitely think there are different portrayals of false accusations of rape that aren't actually dealt with or represented in any way. And I have watched, like, seasons and seasons of SVU. Usually, the false accusations of rape are portrayed in such a way where it's, like, either for a monetary gain or for some form of promotion. Stuff that I have never seen during this research, it has popped up quite a bit, for example, is divorce and, like, false allegations that come during that process. Or just, there's hundreds more that aren't just treated at all, that are not even mentioned anywhere, that are not even treated or dealt with in any TV shows. And I completely understand that, because we, you don't want to discourage people to go and report rape, but then the flip side of it is what we're going to discuss today, and that's social harm. So the episode ends with Kate Harrington being cleared of this accusation. Now he, they say he's free to go, right? And that's when he's like, no, 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 you sit down. You have come to my office, you have basically pulled me out, arrested me, told me that I'm going to go chat with you on rape accusations. How do I go back to work now? How do I go back to, you know, I work in a small town, whatever, in the neighborhood? Everybody knows gonna know this. It might be in the news, it might have already made the papers. No, he was like, give me a certificate, give me something so that I can go out there and basically be able to prove that I haven't been actually accused in this case. They're like, nope, that's just not how the justice system works. So today we're going to discuss why it's not how justice system works, what's wrong with it, what could be improved, and then finally we will discuss what to do if falsely accused of rape, for example, just based on like the research I have found, and you guys are welcome to contribute in the comments area as well. Let's go! So let's start by defining zemiology and what it actually means. So zemiology comes from the Greek word zemia, which means harm. So as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about social harm today. So what zemiologists focus on is how, for example, a charge you might have, let's say, personal drug possession or anything, influences and brings more harm than good to you in the future because of a job loss, because of how your family might treat you, because you might not be able to rent a flat, future job prospects, for example, on good implications, well, at least of justice system in the US, you should watch Christina Randall's channel. She was in prison for three years and is now telling her story, and again, telling you from this point of view what she can and can't do as a felon. Also, if you do know of a channel in the UK that's similar, of like a UK person, that he's been to prison and is now telling the experience, please let me know down in the comments. I'm trying to find that out. Okay, cool. I'm trying to find a channel like that. Cool. Moving on. One of the key features of the social harm is that it encompasses social, economic, psychological, environmental, 
repercussions of committing crime. And it originates from Edwin Sullivan's 1945 essay on is white-collar crime crimes. In this essay, Sutherland argued that it should be expanded. Crime should actually be an expanded field that should expand to like anything causing any social harm in the future. But what we will be focusing on here is Paul Tappan's theory that came two years after Sutherland, so in 1947. And that is the innocent until proven guilty that it's wrong to just mark somebody, whether it's criminal, whether it's organization. So everything that the others or like Sutherland wanted to expand, so like white collar crime, mortgage mis-selling, influenced by poverty, by, by poverty, by unemployment, and actually take into consideration whether they have been pronounced guilty in the court of law and only then mark the organization or the individual as a criminal. Now let's focus on the actual episode on the criminal and kind of like break it down. So to do that first we need to understand the definition of rape and the anonymity around it. So how is rape defined? By Sexual Offenses Act in 2003, rape is when the perpetrator intentionally penetrates the vagina, anus or mouth of another person with his penis. The victim does not consent to the penetration and he, the perpetrator, does not reasonably believe that the victim consents. A person consents if they agree by choice and have the freedom and capacity to make that choice. There are already so many problems with this definition already because what females can't rape, then who can actually consent, how do you consent? Again, there's like so many loopholes, which is again one of the main issues when it comes to this topic. And thinking about the research on false allegations, you're probably going to have divided opinions on it. Because in the UK, according to the Home Office, 4% of these allegations have been found to be false, whereas the stats in Europe and the US are between 2% and 6%. And now what you're thinking is like, well, that isn't that bad. What, 4 in 100 people? That's still 4 in 100 people that have been falsely accused. To put that into numbers, in 2019, so only last year, the stats are not like exact, but it's between 150 and 750 people that have been falsely accused. That's, well, at least 150 people that have probably lost their jobs, that have had significant consequences in getting those jobs later, lost probably family ties as well, had severe mental health issues due to these false allegations. The repercussions are severe and they are severe exactly because if you have been accused of the crime, you cannot remain anonymous while your complainant can. So they can stay anonymous throughout that whole thing while you're technically, you can be named in the papers you can be named in the court. However, it's not that they only name you once they find you guilty of committing a crime. So what happens at best with false allegations is that A, the complainant comes forward and says, no, actually I lied, you know, this person didn't actually rape me or attack me. Or B, that the police manages to prove that it was false. So there are no recent stats that I could find here. The most recent ones I found were from 2007 stating that out of 676 people, they managed to prove that 100 of them have actually falsely been accused of rape. In both of those cases that I just mentioned now, those would be considered no-crime rapes, so just like no-criming. So how does that differ from false allegations to begin with? Actually, it's again bullshit and it comes to the way how we see that definition of rape in the first place, because no-criming technically means 
It can mean there wasn't enough evidence to prove that there was a crime committed, it could mean the technicalities around consent, it could mean that the police didn't believe it, that they couldn't find like enough evidence of where, when, how, why, who, and then they would just maybe dismiss the offenses, but that still doesn't mean that that person is now considered falsely accused, it just means that they believe that there was no sufficient evidence to prove that a crime happened. Which, depending on who you are, again, in the case of Criminal UK, this person was obviously somebody in the business, right? So their name was probably already tarnished, even just during those hours where he went for like a police interrogation. Regarding anonymity, I completely understand that there is no way to do empirical research in this field as such, because again, how do you do research like this? You can't have a control group when it comes to rape. However, that leaves us with the belief that if we don't allow anonymity for the people who have been accused of crime, that that will discourage other victims to come forward. However, that's again just a belief, it hasn't been researched, like there are no stats around that. And the justice system just continues on that basis because they don't want to discourage rape victims to actually make any allegations. However, then you have the flip side of this, where somebody needs to go into the world and actually deal with being accused of crime wrongfully, and there is no certificate, it's exactly how the episode ended. There is no certificate that you can show it's being like, hey, that, no, I actually was innocent here. And there is nothing and you're just left with nothing. You're just left with going into the public and trying to clear your name out, trying to continue with your life as normal, knowing that the repercussions of this, even though you have never been found guilty of a crime, would be severe. So the next part of the video is just going to focus on what I have found as the advice of what people should do have they been falsely accused of crime at all these different stages. So stick around if that's what you're interested in. I'm going to drop in the description box the super useful links from like the solicitors to different blogs, forums, step-by-step -step of what you should do. And finally, we're gonna talk about if your name has actually appeared in the media, how to try to eliminate it from appearing in Google searches. So the first thing, and this is obviously something that's probably instilled into you if you are into true crime, if you have listened to any podcasts, followed any TV shows, and that is to find a lawyer to find a solicitor, but I cannot stress how important this came through this research. And by that I mean, do not say a word to the police without one. Clarify, have you, do they have the right to hold you? And if they do, then obviously ask them to like supply you with a solicitor. If they don't, go home, look for one. And when it comes to searching for a solicitor, obviously, yeah, find one. But then what people have said is, interview them as if you're interviewing them for a job. You don't want somebody that's like, oh, it's my best friend and they are a solicitor. Cool, good, but then, you know, go and dig into certain details, like, have they dealt with these kind of accusations before? How many have they done successfully? Have they liberated anybody for reason? Have they gone to trial ever? All of these things that you need to, like, actually find out to see if that person is then good for you and can actually defend you. Have they done this before? Have they dealt with this before and how successfully? So treat it as if it was a job interview because your life depends on it. A lot of these are from the forums written by people who have been falsely accused, okay? So feel free to drop down the comments just saying it's not like coming just from my head or some like empirical research, it's actually from the people directly. Again, another form I didn't mention when it comes to lawyer, if they obviously 
you can make a phone call so you can call the loved one and they can get you a solicitor as well so if sort of like you are to be kept in a police station then bring them to, to look it for you and again just advise the same thing to them also if you watch this particular episode on the note of the lawyer again never underestimate the thing that in the police station everything is recorded so the sounds the cameras a lot of criminals or people maybe even falsely accused of crime have been caught that way because they will again try to twist and turn everything catch you out the police and then in court in trial again if you're even communicating with a lawyer just be like hey do that probably outside of the police station in the first place or make sure that nothing is monitored but honestly i think in the police stations everything is and you have chosen your lawyer based again on the amount of cases they have acquitted based on all these questions that you have asked them and you actually go to now be interviewed by the police they actually might advise you to have a no comment interview which is quite literally what it sounds like where you just say no comment as the answer to any questions and again if they advise you to do that do it so what's advisable in those situations is to possibly bring a friend along so that the friend takes verbatim notes so again nothing can be misconstrued you have your own version and you have the actual notes and the actual words you have given to the police not gonna lie to you when i read this next part i mean i genuinely find false accusations to be one of the scariest things However, what people don't talk about is how costly it is. Sometimes these solicitors will cost you 300 pounds an hour, meaning for about 30 to 100 hours, you might cash out anything from 10k to 100,000, which is like a deposit, a house. But yeah, they advise you to find a good one, the best one you possibly can, to keep proof above your head to actually still manage to not tarnish your family's behavior afterwards. Because again, the repercussions of this can be serious. Now obviously, let's say you have been let out on bail or you are still in prison, but like, like family or friends can come to visit you, create a support group. Basically, they're saying that's important, just again, because we spoke about the repercussions or well not having one or what it can do to your family relations and just be blunt with them it's like this is what has happened this is it and start collecting with them your own evidence so whether it's pictures of like any bruises you might have anything that you know that police might consider evidence in that case and these people have said that it's important to then bring that version like your version of events and evidence to the solicitor to represent you However, what is also super important, staying on top of like social media, have you appeared anywhere else, in what sense, you know, is anybody trying to twist and turn your story, being on top of that, but distancing yourself from a reaching to the complainant, do not reach to them or their friends, doesn't matter if they're in the same friend group, because again, everything can be misconstrued, they can be wearing about like, you don't know what their game is if they are on the side of the complainant and trying not to get in touch because everything again if you try to get in touch and apologize then people are going to be like well why are you apologizing if you haven't done anything wrong again every message every piece of evidence can be misconstrued and used against you and if it's on the flip side if somebody from the complainant team or like their group of friends tries to contact you i would say report to the police from again everything i've read don't allow to be taunted. You really need to be on your best behavior when it comes to these cases. While you're under investigation, also what a lot of people don't think about is that everything that you search for on Google, everything, every single piece of evidence, everything you post on social media, 
is disclosable and is not subject to legal privileges. You don't have like GDPR rights. So people have suggested using like a flash drive to search through Tor, which I mentioned on Vesa Mafia, which is kind of like a website that it keeps your handles and everything private. But again, as I mentioned in the Vesa Mafia case, they can find your handles if they like claim your laptop and everything. So again, try to probably stay away from anything incriminating, anything that can be misconstrued. I'm not saying you're doing anything incriminating, but anything that can be seen like, hey, maybe they're trying to use this defense because this is exactly what they have done, kind of thing. Let's say now you have spoken to the solicitor, you have like prepared your case. Well, from what I've read on these forums, like with everything that's in any case administrative, like it will take a long time. So CPS, the police, just everything will take long time, during which time your name, yes, is still not clear, then you still need to be on your best behavior. However, now when you get the case file from the prosecution's team, what people have advised is to quite literally take it as it's your own file and you are making commentary on it. It's like as if you were marking somebody's essay, but it's the most important essay of their life. So you are quite literally to highlight every single thing that you think they might even ask you understand and just actually think about how what you can say on it, how can you contradict it. So all of these witness statements that you have gotten from the prosecution team, you need to really go through it line by line. In a sense, writing down, this is wrong and this is why. This is what evidence I have to support it. And that's with every single statement, every single piece of it. Obviously, at this stage, you are looking to go to trial, so treat finding a barrister the exactly same way. So, sort of like, have the profound conversations with them, do it in a sense, again, of like, telling your side of the story, talking to them as if you were, again, interviewing them quite like with your own solicitor. From what I've read, you will have two to three visits to the court before the actual trial. Again, you're to suss out the prosecution side, but again, everything is being judged. So how you act to the judge, to the prosecution, to everybody. And you should try really to make the most out of that time and to actually have ask any questions that you might have about the actual court day and like, what you can expect so that you are prepared. Because when it comes to trial, don't be like your girl here who can't keep a straight face. No, if you smile, if you do as much as raise an eyebrow for the wrong thing, the jury and the judge are gonna see that and they're gonna judge it. Again, don't be like me here wearing a freaking hoodie. You need to be well-groomed, you need to dress smartly for the court because again, everything is judged and everything is perceived in a certain way. And take this court day as something you have been preparing now for months to be on your best behavior on that day. Meaning, again, when you go understand how you act with the prosecutions and with people questioning you, again, matters. When you give your statement, again, try to give it as like easy to understand story, split in different paragraphs, split in different sections, telling it as it happened, and maybe take like sips of water here and there in between, again, for you to just manage to do it in a composed, nice manner, like this is what happens, this is what was wrong with these statements. And again, when you answer the questions, they will obviously try to get you to get angry, try to showcase you as this person 
as the type of person that we see committing this type of crime. It's again how you manage to act, how you manage to deal and cope with all these questions that come at you. Obviously, if everything works out and you are just acquitted of the crime, then what you need to make sure is that your solicitor contacts any local news or anybody that has released your name in any news in, any, in this context and to try to clear your name. Make sure basically that everybody that has previously reported on you reports that you have been acquitted of the crime. Because this is when you really begin to clear your name. Because at this point, you have probably, your name has probably appeared at least in your local news. But as I'm referring to the Criminal UK episode with Kit Harrington, in this case, because he was big in that business area, I think it was sales, whatever it was. So by that point, probably even though it was just a couple of hours, that he has been just interrogating by the police, his name has probably already been tarnished. So obviously with some level of influence or like celebrity in the neighborhood or just in town, the more you will have to work in order to clear your name. There is a law on this and that's the law that allows you to be forgotten. And it's kind of new, well, it was only applied since 2014. But what it allows for is on platforms like Google and Bing, that you can actually submit a form, I'll drop those down in the description box, where you can submit a form, you can explain basically your situation, that you have been found not guilty, that's again important, and basically that you want your right to be forgotten, you don't want to appear in the web searches when people search your name. However, with Google, they say that they might decline to remove certain information about financial scams, professional malpractice, criminal convictions, or public conduct of government officials. But when it comes to web searches, I think it is the best thing out there. Obviously, if I'm mistaken, correct me down in the comments. Because unfortunately, when we think about these kind of offenses today, you need to think about how to clear your name online as well as in real life. That's it when it comes to zemiology and just the study of social harm applicable, obviously, to this case. However, there is another branch that I have looked into a bit more, and that is because I know that personally, if I was to ever be falsely accused of anything, that in my mind what would motivate me is the fact that, well, that person can actually be imprisoned for this if I manage to prove it, right? They can be in prison for either perverting the course of justice or just wasting the police time. So I was like, okay, give me something on this. The anything that I could find was beyond disappointing. <laughs> just, I don't know how, I don't know how else to word it. It's about 6.4% of these false allegations and these are pretty recent stats, so between 2011 and 2012, the police only kind of bothered to research into 6.5% of the false allegations. So people are righteously so wondering online, where is the public outcry for this? Why is nobody really talking about how this is taken into consideration? Because on the flip side, imagine if we only investigate in 6.4% of people that have claimed that they have been raped. That would cause huge public outcry. However, this isn't. But that's that on social harm and just breaking down the analysis of the Criminal UK episode. Wasn't that like super interesting and just, I don't know, I just realized uh, that social harm plays a lot of things in certain cases. Plus I kind of had to mention that, you know, how false accusations are usually portrayed on TV because I just hate seeing it portrayed in that way. 
But what I really wanted to know is obviously like if you know anything from personal experience or if I was just I don't know mistaken missed have some like might have missed something either comment on the on the YouTube video or just drop me an email you can do it directly through Instagram like by clicking on the email link or just DM me I mean that's maybe even easier Instagram like whether I have missed something whether like there is material for a whole another video on the false accusations in general because personally thinking about it it's one of the scariest things because it's such a miscarriage of justice. And as I mentioned in this video, it's kind of not like innocent until proven guilty. When it comes to the media, when it comes to your own family, when it comes to, to yeah, Google searches that pop up with your name and how it goes when you look for your next job. And even just clearing your name afterwards is such a bitch. But let me know what you have thought about this. Either through socials on pod everywhere or podbam at gmail.com. And now, look at the time, look at that watch, what time it is, time for you to go into that next Zoom call. And I've been thinking about this a lot, well, in general, but I don't know why, in particular in past week's time. Because I was like, hey, what am I kind of grateful for? And it's mostly now working from the <laughs> from home, not to have to deal with the people that I could not stand for the love of God. There's always that one person in the office that you just can't stand like everything that they say you're like how how you're just vile you're just a vile human like why is this thing coming out of your mouth and we all we all had that one person right and it's how you personally deal with that person that everything depends on so even before going into your next zoom call I actually found here, like, I'm gonna sound like I'm a monk preaching some shit, but I actually found this to come at the right time. I was binging on Headspace. I know, it's a meditation app. You shouldn't binge on it. I know, you judge me. But just like with everything, with podcasts and everything, I'm, like, on a binge. So, this is, like, two years ago. So, I just kind of downloaded Headspace, did that Headspace and Spotify thing. So, I was like, yeah, let's make the most out of it and then just listen to it on repeat constantly. So again, on top of my head, I can't really remember which course on it is it, but like it's basically a prevalent thing if you know anything about meditation in general, or you have probably heard about it. It's kind of to do with loving kindness, but it's kind of to do with visualization and imagining another person being happy and that kind of like bringing you joy, bringing you happiness. Well, obviously this one was focusing on, well, people that you might not like as much. And this just kind of came like at a really good moment. It was like such great timing because I really hated this bitch. <laughs> she would sit next to me and she would constantly just be mean. Just like some of the things that you're like, okay, th this should have been surpassed in like high school. Like stuff that comes out of your mouth. You're just a vile person. I don't know how to deal with you. I just didn't deal with this shit. You know, last time I dealt with this, I was like seven. <laughs> what the hell? So on the tube, on the commute, I would just zone in. And just try to picture them sitting like right across from me and just being like the happiest person in the world. She wouldn't shut the hell up. She would just be telling mean things. I'd be like, but look at her. She is so happy. She is thrilled. And then, you know, I would like just go to work and deal with her. And I was like, okay, this helped me because I understood. She is happy being this bitch, right? <laughs> Obviously, that doesn't mean you condone it. It just means, like, you deal with it personally. Like, she has to live with herself, right? This is this is it. This is exactly what the meditation teaches you. Yep, she has to deal with her mean self at all times. That's the goal. 
So in your next Zoom call, you just look at that person and you're like, they are so happy. Just being themselves is so great. I'm just gonna continue imagining them being this happy forever. And by doing so, by making sure you deal with it peacefully, you deal with it in the best way for yourself, what do you do? You keep making this world a better place, one motive at a time. Bye fuckers, till the next one!